0: Hey, it's Alice. Just a quick reminder before we get started that the views you're going to hear on the show today belong to Jim, me, and our guests. They don't reflect the Department of the Army or the Department of Defense. Okay, here's the show.
1: But if you go to war, you go in with overwhelming
2: military force. We have over 100,000 transgender veterans. Why do I deserve to go? Why not any of these guys? They all fought just as hard as me.
0: Welcome to Thank You for Your Service, a conversation with practitioners, scholars, artists, and you about the relationship between the military and civilians. I'm Alice Friend. I'm a senior fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies and a visiting research professor at the U.S. Army War College. I worked at the Pentagon as a civilian in the office of the Secretary of Defense.
2: And I'm Jim Golby. I served as an Army officer for 20 years. Now I'm a senior fellow at the Clement Center at the University of Texas, Austin. On this podcast, we consider the civilian and military perspectives on war, government, politics, and service. Alice, you might not know this about me, but I used to be terrible with computers and social media. And as an Army officer, it was a huge problem because I had used computers in the Army a lot.
0: I didn't know that. You seem pretty savvy online now. What happened?
2: Well... It got a lot better after the Army sent me to Reboot Camp.
0: Oh, Jim, I thought we said no dad jokes. I knew I shouldn't have let you write the script
2: this week. Listeners, this week we will be talking about the civil-military relationship online, on professional development blogs and satirical websites, on social media, and in the public eye.
0: And our producer and I will be trying...
2: And probably failing
0: to keep Jim from telling more bad dad jokes. This time on Thank You For Your Service.
2: You can't do the simplest things today without using a computer.
0: What What is internet anyway? Internet is uh, that massive computer network, Mm -hmm.
2: the one that's becoming really big now. What do you mean, that's big? How does one, what do you write to it like mail? The internet also represents a new type of communication one that permits people
0: in separate places to meet in a new territory called cyberspace. Sometimes it is shocking to think there was ever a time before the internet, smartphones, and social media. But Jim and I are old enough to have watched those things revolutionize our world, our language, and our relationships.
2: When I first started studying civil military relations in graduate school 12 years ago, The first iPhone had been out for less than a year, and social media sites like Facebook and Twitter were barely on anyone's radar. Instagram and TikTok weren't even around yet.
0: But today, social media is ubiquitous, including for most Americans serving in the military. Scholars are finally starting to research how service members use social media and how their behavior on social media shapes public perceptions of the military.
1: I guess the first thing was I was probably motivated by watching my own social media feed and starting to see an increase, perhaps, a willingness for members of the military to wade into the political arena online. Some of it was innocuous. A lot of it seemed to be from retired members more so. But I wanted to test it in a more rigorous way to see what is the nature and extent of members of the military's political activity online."
2: Dr. Heidi Urban is an adjunct associate professor in Georgetown University's security studies program and the nation's foremost expert on partisan and political behavior by active duty service members. Later this year, she'll retire from the army after a 23-year career.
0: Heidi told us she found that service members use social media about as much as their civilian peers. And, just like in American society, there are clear differences in social media usage between digital natives in uniform and older, more senior officers and non-commissioned officers.
2: But Heidi was most interested in exploring an area where we should see a difference between the military and civilians, partisan political behavior.
0: I wanted to be
1: careful about how I framed uh, questions. So I asked respondents to describe their military friends' activity and behavior, I wanted to avoid any social desirability bias or perceived pressure to uh, provide the normatively correct response. So I didn't ask them to detail their own personal online activity and behavior. And in my survey, I asked uh, whether or not respondents had observed their active duty military friends share insulting, rude, or disdainful comments directed against politicians running for office specific elected leaders, or the president uh, on social media sites. And what I found uh, was was alarming, that 50% of respondents answered affirmatively for witnessing rude comments against politicians running for office, 35% answered affirmatively for rude comments against specific elected leaders, and another uh, 34% answered affirmatively for rude, disdainful comments against the president. Even if the offenders form a small proportion of the respondents, how well assured is subordination to the commander-in-chief if members of the active-duty military engage in sarcasm or vitriol against him in a public forum?
0: We should note Heidi conducted her survey in December of 2015, when President Obama was in office. She's running another survey now, asking similar questions during the Trump administration.
2: Although she's still waiting for her new data, Heidi doesn't think this behavior is about a particular president or elected leader. Rather, she thinks it's because the military's nonpartisan norm has been eroding.
0: I asked her what she thought the military services could do about this problem, about the idea that service members' behavior on social media often takes place in the public sphere, whether those in uniform realize it or not. Heidi said it ultimately comes down to engaged leadership, in person and online.
1: Leaders and commanders need to engage in a frank dialogue about the norm of nonpartisanship and why it's so important to the profession of arms. Uh, By making it solely a social media issue, we miss the larger point of the norm of nonpartisanship. And I've, I've often said that norms don't just take hold in any institution, certainly in the military, uh, and and they're not maintained without constant reinforcement and teaching of it. Uh, And I think we've really lost our way on that, that we don't teach this consistently and then we don't model it consistently uh, throughout the force at all levels.
2: We also talked to another active duty army officer, one who is trying to model the sort of online professional behavior Heidi talked about, and he's built organizations, communities, to help him do it.
0: Nate Finney is an Army strategist and a founder of the Strategy Bridge, the Military Writers Guild, and the Defense Entrepreneurs Forum. We asked Nate what drew him to engage online in the first place.
3: So I really, I started personally online uh, for three main reasons. It It was to learn, to collaborate, and to be a part of a community. And this started back when I was a junior officer, I began blogging, and it was really to try and figure out that transition I was going through from a junior officer in armor to an army strategist. And the reason I kind of took this approach was based on advice of a great mentor of mine, Jim Greer, who had encouraged me uh, to undertake a lot of writing in order to think uh, about problems, to solicit feedback, and to build a community. And this led me from blogging onto social media, first Facebook and then Twitter. And the interactions I was having on that social media started to build communities that eventually codified into those organizations you mentioned.
2: Nate told us one reason he likes social media platforms is because they provide an informal, low-risk environment for professional development to take place.
3: Good example of this, a recent example. There's a, a cadet from the University of Maryland who who was recently uh, did a tweet thread about commissioning and particularly picking a branch. What branch you choose is, is the one that kind of drives what your career is going to be like, and so she was struggling with that. And so she just put out a, a thread to, to, you know, maybe a little bit of catharsis for herself, as well as probably to generate some feedback to make herself feel like she, was, she, she could talk about the issue, I think is one of the, the great examples of why online forums and online interaction allows for that reduction in risk and to be a little more vulnerable than you might be in a unit.
0: I also asked Nate whether he thought there were problems with conducting professional development in the public view, and whether service members could ever really drop the veil of professionalism
3: online. You know, I, I view being particularly on Twitter, but social media in general, is, it's for those in the profession, in uniform. That it's really akin to being in in a really large, crowded room with not just your peers, not just your uh, superiors, but the wider public at the same time. And, you know, sure, it would be very easy to throw a, a well-meant insult to a friend like you would do in person, or to criticize a senior leader, criticize elected leaders, or even, as has happened and does happen, uh, subtweeting your own command with with. An amazing amount of snark, right? Uh, Those things do happen. They can happen. But if our profession is working the way that it should, someone will call you on it.
2: Nate told us he hasn't always felt this way. When he began engaging online, he used a pseudonym, sometimes called an anonymous account. But he shed this identity as he rose in rank and became more comfortable.
0: He also told us the military's culture has changed since he started blogging over a decade ago. And he credited engaged leaders like Lieutenant General Ted Martin, Major General Tammy Smith, Major General Pat Donahoe, and Colonel Jason Williams for setting a positive example and a good climate on Twitter.
2: But pseudonyms and anonymous accounts are still fairly common. And Nate told us he understands why.
3: Any minority group or any group uh, in a lesser position of power uh, takes risk in any kind of public statement any kind of public position. And so I absolutely think their concerns are valid. My position on anonymous and uh, pseudonym accounts has evolved over time. There are a lot of really great um, anonymous accounts out there, PowerPoint Sapper, or a bunch of others who engage very, very professionally and just for whatever reason feel it is in their best interest personally and professionally to be anonymous. There was a, time, a, a period of time uh, where I personally was advising folks like that to stop being anonymous. I have since evolved back to my original position, which is what should matter is the content and conversations that they are putting out. If it's professional, then it's a benefit to the profession. It doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't matter what rank they are.
0: Nate's last point is important because most of the people in the military who are online aren't officers like him. And a lot of good ideas, and most of the best humor, come from the enlisted ranks. That's the group our next guest says is always his target audience.
4: It's for the junior enlisted soldier, marine, or the junior level officer. Um, I started Duffelblog from the sense of that's who I am. I got out as a sergeant, and so... The, the the humor and the things that I understand from my time in in the Marine Corps and the the sort of jokes and the way you can skewer certain policies and you know certain events they come from a perspective of a person who you know has been sitting standing in that formation and you know talking to the buddy next to them and saying oh, this this new CEO he's he's a pain in the butt. <laughs> Instead of doing that, I've always seen like Duffelblog grows into that platform to highlight those problems in just a humorous light. And they really start from that junior level and bubble their way up to the top.
2: Paul Zoldra served for eight years as a Marine infantryman, deploying to the Indo-Pacific and Afghanistan. Since 2018, he's been the editor-in-chief of Task and Purpose. But he's also the founder of the infamous military satire site, The Duffel Blog.
0: That junior level is very important to Paul, both at The Duffel Blog and at Task and Purpose. He says he just wants to make Marines, soldiers, sailors, airmen, and whatever we're calling the Space Force personnel laugh.
4: I don't write a lot anymore, but when I was writing articles, my standard was just is this funny for me? Do I like this? Like if I were still in the Marine Corps. As a sergeant, would I laugh? Would I make this? Would I pass this around? And if the answer to that is yes, then great, we're going to publish it. If it's no,
2: then then we won't. But just because he wants it to be funny, that doesn't mean that the Duffel Blog and Task and Purpose don't tackle issues that matter.
4: My team of reporters there, number one focus: the things that I remind them about every single day is to think about how this thing that you're asking a question about, how does this affect? the junior troop, the soldier on the ground. And we want to find those people, talk to them, get their problems, you know, and then we take those issues and we go up to the top and we ask them, you know, tough questions about why this is a problem. When are you going to fix it? Or why can't you fix it? And readers can, you know, can go from there and and see whether that, (laughs) that ends up working out.
0: Paul doesn't seem to be under any illusions that satirical articles are driving high-level decision-making at the Pentagon. But he does believe military satire and veteran reporters play an important role in exposing issues where civilians feel like they can't speak up or don't know what questions to ask.
4: Generally speaking, I think we defer very much to the Pentagon uh, and the military. Part of this is due to you know, post 9-11 and, and, you know, that horrible event, and then everybody rallies around. And, and that sort of made sense at that time. You know, then now we're 18 years later, and we're still in Afghanistan. And, and we're in many, many other places that we never expected to be in when we started. And, you know, some people who are pointing that out are kind of seen as either a isolationist, which is just it's just a, a way to shut people down. There's less scrutiny there for the Pentagon in, instead of like, a, you know, like a DHS or energy or any other kind of cabinet roles, the Justice Department. The Pentagon has that we're in the military, thank us for our service sort of shield, if you will, that helps them avoid that sometimes.
0: Duffel blog in particular, being this interesting way to get around that, because it's veterans who kind of know know better, right, who can break the or get, get behind the curtain, as you say, but also who are using satire and humor to point out hypocrisy and to point out absurdity and to point out where, you know, you don't need any classified information, really, right? Like you, you can kind of go around it and just say, but this doesn't make any sense. <laughs> you know, like, It makes so little sense that we're all laughing at
2: you. Jokes and headlines in the Duffel blog are often biting criticisms of flawed defense policies or hypocrisy in the military. But Paul is proud of his time in the Marine Corps, and he loves service members. He satirizes the military and criticizes it, because that's always been an important way that service members deal with the hardships and contradictions of military service.
0: In fact, Paul thinks there are a lot of good things about the military being online and in public so that Americans can learn more about the men and women in uniform.
4: There's just so many uh, military members on social media, specifically in, on Instagram uh, is probably um, one of the biggest. And, you know, they're posting memes, they're posting about their day. And I think, um, I think uh, it's a good thing. That's a great thing to, you know, if you're in the military, if you're in the Army, and you're posting you know, from Fort Bragg, uh, and you're posting your gym workout, or you're doing this, it's obviously there's a good, there's a recruiting aspect to that of followers that are not in the army see the sort of daily life of a soldier, and they're not a recruiter, they're just telling you about their day. It's, it's something that's powerful to someone who potentially could join.
0: Paul told us he thinks most of the first military bloggers in Iraq felt a responsibility to share their experiences with the public.
4: They felt like they had this kind of duty to, to help people understand because there's so much in the military that just the, the average civilian just doesn't understand. You ask the average civilian how the military works and they're going to think that it's marching around and saluting and then occasionally shooting bad guys. They don't have any understanding of the differences in jobs and the differences and you know it's not you can't just order someone to do things there is some nuance to it you know we we don't all just say yes sir immediately and and turn around and go do it and so yeah the social media space has been really really great with with the military
2: this theme came up repeatedly in our discussions this week the idea that seeing the opinions of service members online can help the public understand more about our small volunteer military. But the outsized impact of military and veterans voices online also makes them a target.
5: So service members, veterans, and our families are more at risk than the average American because we are an economically efficient target. What I mean by that is that service members, veterans, and our families are more likely than others to be influencers in our social networks, not just on Facebook, on Twitter, online. We're more likely to socially influence, politically influence our immediate family members, our closest friends. You know, I spent a year in combat and come home at the age of 20. uh, And, you know, when I went to a bar, people that I used to look up to when I was in high school. Would approach me and come and ask, you know, my opinions on world affairs because of my experience overseas. You know, my experience overseas doesn't necessarily make me educated on international political affairs, but a lot of people think it does. And when you multiply that times 22 million vets, you've got an economically efficient target.
0: That was Christopher Goldsmith. He is the founder and president of High Ground Veterans Advocacy a 501c3 not-for-profit, which partners with military and veteran service organizations to train veterans to become grassroots advocates and leaders in their local communities. Chris is also the chief investigator for Vietnam Veterans of America and wrote the definitive 219-page study of foreign entities that target troops, veterans, and their families online. That study found that foreign actors prey on American military communities with a variety of financial scams and with political disinformation.
2: Chris told us that although foreign actors specifically target service members online, this also allows them to have an impact on American society writ large. You know, whether it's a Macedonian or someone in Vietnam
5: printing a t-shirt that says, vets versus illegals or vets before refugees, doesn't really matter because the effect is the same. And, you know, what I think that my report, what I hope I I made clear in my report is that these divisive online memes are coming into the real world. And when they're taking, you know, these online memes, these divisive messages and convincing someone, you know, you should buy this t-shirt and go wear it in public you're creating real friction between Americans. There's a point in time in my life where I used to, uh, you know, get in a fair amount of fights. Say when I was fresh out of the army, fresh home from Iraq, I was really rough around the edges. You know, you can call that PTSD, you can call it testosterone and immaturity, whatever it is. But if I saw someone wearing a t-shirt that said, that's not illegals, I might, you know, um, confront that person. And that's whether it's, again, whether it's a Russian who's hoping to divide Americans or it's a Vietnamese kid putting himself through college, doesn't matter. The effect is the same. And that's why we need to, I think, get away from the focus on on Russia and really put the onus on educating Americans on what the effect of these divisive political messages are.
0: One of the reasons Chris thinks these political messages are so effective is because they use our existing divides, civil-military divides, racial divides, political divides, to exacerbate already existing fault lines in our society.
5: Uh, I think it's a common misconception that these divisive political narratives have started overseas. Sometimes they may be, but... at at least from what I saw when investigating these military and veteran-focused pages, these were messages that were often created inside the United States and then amplified. They amplify it and get it in front of the right audience. And we do the rest of the work ourselves as Americans. We're, you know, we tear each other apart.
2: Chris is frustrated that Americans haven't been taking this problem more seriously and that legislators have done so little to help inoculate our society against this foreign influence targeting veterans. Chris even recounted a story about his testimony before Congress, where a senator repeated messages to him that had been created by the very same Macedonian group that Chris had discovered had taken over the Vets for Trump Facebook page a few years ago.
0: But I did ask Chris what he wanted service members to know about how to protect themselves and others online. Here's what he said.
5: I I hope that service members are reading news, are not separating themselves from the daily stresses of American political life. I hope that they're educating themselves, but I, I just want them to check their sources. And when they're reading something and it seems sensationalist, before they share it, think about where it came from. What are the motives of the person who
2: prepared this, you know, meme or article? Chris's last comment reminded me of something else Heidi Urban told us.
1: You know, my personal take is we should should read and listen more and post less. I have no objections to the military being on social media, but we could probably all benefit from just a little bit more restraint.
2: With such a small percentage of the population serving in uniform, military activity online can have a big impact on how people in America view the military. As we've heard today, service members' online activity can be inappropriate, thoughtful, funny, even damaging. But it's almost always done in the public view, whether service members realize it or not.
0: I guess I'm left with the realization that the military being online and its impact on the civil-military relationship aren't things we can really avoid. We just have to be more careful about them.
2: I think you're right, Alice. You might even say "Data ship has sailed.
0: No, I'd never say that.
2: Come on, Um, I thought that one was pretty good.
0: Where are your kids? I need them to start sitting with you while we record so they can stop this.
2: Well, that's our show for today. If you liked what you heard, especially if you like my jokes, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: We love to hear from our listeners. Follow us on Twitter. We're at tyfys underscore podcast.
2: And send us an email telling us what you think of the show and what else you'd like us to cover. Our address is tyfyspodcast.com at gmail.com flight notes and dad jokes only please
0: no no dad jokes thanks for joining us see you next time